This is episode 35, Inside the Head of Tour de France racer TJ Van Garderen. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories. Today's guest is no stranger to the cycling world or to inspiring stories. His name is TJ Van Garderen. TJ has finished fifth place twice at the Tour de France, won stages in races like the Giro d'Italia and the Volta España, and he currently rides for BMC Racing. This guy is in the top group and on top of the world stage of professional road cyclists. The thing that I really enjoyed about talking with TJ is that he is really down to earth and he was really easy to talk to in our conversation. He's somebody that I hope that I get to ride with at some point. My husband, Matt, co-hosted this episode with me, and we both thought that TJ seemed like a truly genuine guy. We just both felt at ease immediately talking to him. He has been racing since the age of 10 and has had his ups and downs over his career, just like anybody who has a long-standing career. We talked about how to deal with expectations, especially when you aren't meeting them. We talk about inner and outer expectations. We talk about his background in racing and what it's actually like to race at his level. In interviews at some of these grand tours, you don't actually get to hear the whole story. And TJ told us a lot of interesting stories about some of his races. We talk about what it's like to have little kids and a wife and travel like he does. TJ races more than 80 days a year and he's in Europe a lot of the time, so managing family is something that he has to do regularly. And TJ also tells us what inspires him and how he maintains race weight and how he actually approaches a three-week race like the Tour de France. Racing for three weeks is definitely physical, but there's a huge mental component as well. Before we get into it, I want to mention a cool company called Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for athletes and health conscious people like us. It's pretty cool to be rewarded for taking care of ourselves. Life insurance is one of those things we all need as adults, hashtag adulting, but Health IQ actually helps us save money when we take care of ourselves. They have an online quiz and also look at things like your Strava and ask questions about your diet to assess where you would qualify. People save up to 33% on their life insurance, so if you want to get a quote or compare it to what you're already paying, or maybe you still haven't gotten around to getting life insurance, I know I dragged my feet on that, go to healthiq.com slash Sonia or mention the promo code Sonia when you talk to a Health IQ agent. All right, let's get into the show. Here is TJ Van Garderen. Yeah, my pleasure. So you're in the middle of a training camp, or is it a one-week training camp? Yeah, I'm here in Valencia doing a training camp with the team. We come to the same hotel every year, a couple times a year, get together as a group and train some good weather on some good roads. Cool. Sounds good. Like last night it snowed a lot. So our uh, training today will be building snowmen and shoveling the driveway. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you got to train the core too. That's right. Got to stay in shape. (laughs) These baby soft hands though, they're not used to grabbing, grabbing shovels. (laughs) They're already bleeding. Cool. Um, we just have a few questions that we want to go through today with you, but I'm excited that you rode with Reggie. Like, tell me about that ride. Yeah. So, uh, funny story. It was, um, I had come from the U S to my apartment in France and I was jet lagged and alone. And I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta stay awake till at least nine. (laughs) 
So I, I'm flipping through iTunes and I find, you know, Reggie Miller's 30 for 30, the winning time Reggie Miller versus New York Knicks. And I put it on and I kind of knew who Reggie Miller was because, you know, Space Jam was huge back in, yes! in the <laughs> I love Space Jam too. <laughs> so I was like, so I kind of, you know, was following basketball and um, I was like, all right, Reggie Miller, you know, that sounds cool. And I watch it and I'm just like captivated. I, I turn it off halfway through and think, okay, it's time to go to bed. But then I was like, oh, I can't sleep. I got to watch the rest of this thing. <laughs> and so I kind of started Googling him a little bit and I, I see all these pictures of him on bikes. I'm like, oh man, I got to ride with him. Because it just so happened that I was coming to uh, California because I had to get some Spanish visas sorted out. But I was like, how do I get in touch with Reggie Miller? I mean, I have no idea. I looked at his Strava page and he has a Strava. And uh, I was like, hmm, am I really going to give out my information on a public forum? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to. I said, hey, Reggie, here's my email address. Email me if you want to ride. I'm headed to California. And he immediately responded saying, yeah, it'd be a huge honor. And I was like, oh, man, I can't believe I actually am going to ride with Reggie Miller. And uh, yeah, we did a nice three-hour loop. Yeah, it was so cool. We, uh, we talked about pretty much everything. That's so cool. Yeah. Reggie's like such an inclusive guy. Like he's amazing. He responds to messages and he loves biking and it's really great for our sport. And I think it's so funny because he texted me saying, Oh my gosh, I'm riding with TJ. And you're (laughs) (laughs) man. I, I actually look back at this day. You know, that Chris Farley Saturday night live when I was like, I was all like, remember when you're with the Pacers? (laughs) Um, yeah, I wish I would have played it a little bit more cool, but I was still a little bit, you know, starstruck in by it's the Reggie Miller, but ah, I'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure he would want to ride with you again, so. <laughs> anytime, anytime. <laughs> cool. So how did you get into cycling? Um, So I have a European father, so he was always, you know, playing the Tour de France every July. Uh, He's a club rider, so he was always doing the Tuesday night races in Bozeman, Montana, where I grew up. So I kind of, you know, grew up watching him and following him, and and then it just evolved that way. So you thought, like, okay, I'm going to start riding. Was it always road biking? It actually started out mountain biking. I entered a few mountain bike races when I was, like, 10 years old. And then he had an old a teammate of his left a road bike in his closet. And just, you know, by the time I was able to tall enough to fit my legs over the seat, I started riding road bikes. And from there, we started taking trips across the country, competing in junior national championships as a 10 year old. Wow. And uh, just it just kind of grew and evolved. And yeah. So was it hard to make the transition from being like a junior racer traveling over the U.S. to moving to Europe? And, and you did that relatively young as well, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, the the transition was um, it wasn't like trial by fire or anything. I mean, it was uh, so I, I started traveling around the U.S. doing races and then got onto the national team. And they had a they had a house in Belgium that we would stay at. So it was a little bit of culture shock then. But at least you're kind of babied at that time. You uh you have to pack your bags, but they like everything is taken care of. Your meals are cooked, and it's basically like staying in a frat house. <laughs> and then I, I signed for an amateur team, uh, Rabobank, which is a Dutch team, and I have a lot of Dutch family. So I was staying with them for a couple of years, 
And, you know, I was still a little bit babied there. And when I signed a pro contract, then it was like, okay, get your own apartment, sort out your visas in a car. And there it was a little bit difficult to figure out because I was like 20-year-old kid trying to sort out everything. And I think a lot of 20-year-olds would probably have enough trouble with that <laughs> in the U.S., let alone a foreign country speaking a different language. But uh, uh, luckily, by that time, I had met Jessica, my wife now. And she was all dialed with that stuff. She knew how to take care of everything. And so it's kind of like I was still being babied a little bit. <laughs> exactly. Is your wife American or is she European? Yeah, she's American. Cool. Yeah, she grew up in Aspen, Colorado, which is where we were living for a long time. We just sold the house there and now we're making a full-time move to uh, Girona, Spain. Oh, wow. And was she racing at the time or what was she doing in Europe? She was racing. She is actually a two-time national champion. That's one in time trial and one in road race. So, uh, yeah, we met through racing. Yeah, we it was uh, at a national team event in uh, in L.A. actually, and we were riding the track. Neither of us had ridden the track before. We were the only we got invited for some reason, but we were the people there who had never ridden the track before. So we kind of <laughs> bonded over our complete inexperience. <laughs> That's awesome. So is it pretty hard to be traveling as much as you do and have a family and like you guys had a baby? What's that like? Yeah, it's challenging for sure. And I mean, we were trying for the longest time to live on two continents. We were thinking, you know, we have the place in the U.S. and we want the kids to go to school there. I'll be over here to race and you guys can come and visit. And man, that was just such a hectic life. I mean, we have a four and a half year old girl and a one and a half year old girl. And the newest baby, before she even turned one, had made three trips back and forth to Europe. And now with the old needing to start school, it was just becoming more and more apparent that, you know, we can't we can't subject them to so much travel and so much uh, just instability. So we have to kind of pick and choose. And I still have a lot, a lot of years left to my career. So we're like, all right, let's just fully commit to the to Europe, at least for the remainder of our of my career and then figure it out from there. And how many days per year do you race? Like, And how many days of extra travel go in and around that? So last year, I raced a total of 85 race days. And that's obviously, you know, races are sometimes a week long, or if you do a grand tour, they're three weeks long. So it's, uh, but you add up all the total of race days, there's 85 days. And then you're also obviously going to have a travel day on each end of that. So I was actually pretty happy this last year because I was like, I told Reggie, yeah, I guess more is than an NBA player plays games because they usually play an 82-game season. So. Yeah, totally. And they don't got to deal with nearly the kind of cultural shock, time zone change, all kinds of crazy. Like you guys are racing not just in Europe but all over the world. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, it has its pluses and minuses. Yeah, there's the culture shock, there's the jet lag, there's all of that. But uh, these guys, it seems like as soon as their season starts, there's never any downtime. Like our races are in groups. You know, we do a week racing and then we have a week at home where we're either resting, recovering, training, but we don't have to see our teammates. We don't. <laughs> With the NBA, it seems like these guys, they're, they play every other day. Sometimes times back to back but it's just like they never have a week where they can just kind of regroup restructure it's it's yeah it seems like as soon as, as soon as the ball goes in the air they're just going all the whole season yeah so like as a pro mountain biker i do four to five stage races a year so i end up racing like 
35 days a year, which is nothing compared to your like 80 something days a year. And I can't imagine doing that many days racing. So how do you keep your body going? How do you recover? Like, how do you manage that? Well, honestly, I can't believe that you can race that many days on a mountain bike because that takes such way more of a toll on your body. I mean, I like to mountain bike a lot in the off season, in the winter to kind of as a little bit of cross training to stay in shape and have fun. But I have kind of like this three hour limit on a mountain bike because it's just so jarring on your whole body. And, you know, on the road, you're on this smooth pavement. You can kind of just cruise along for hours at a time. You don't have that luxury on mountain biking, but yeah, definitely there, you know, racing does take its toll. I mean, we have massage therapists, physiotherapists on the team. It's a regular body work, definitely core. Like we were talking about earlier, keeping everything in line, keeping everything healthy and also just, yeah, staying healthy, not getting, not getting sick, having to travel all this time and, you know, trying to be lean at raceway, you know, you're always susceptible to germs and stuff i'm always carrying around hand sanitizer it's like like little things like that just always that can make a big difference at the end of the season yeah it's so funny like (laughs) we avoid sick people all the time and it's like almost like cyclists act like we have an autoimmune disease or something like we can't get sick and it really does take a toll like matt and i got sick over the holidays because we showed up at christmas at my in-laws house and they were renting a house in California and we walk in the door and everybody's sick and we're like, what do we do? Do we leave? But it's Christmas. And both of us ended up getting sick and neither one of us have ridden in actually like I'm coming up on two weeks and today's going to be my first day back. And it's crazy. Like we had to cancel our race in Chile, like all this stuff. And people, if you're not like a cyclist that races all the time, it's hard for like friends and family to understand the gravity of being around somebody who's sick or like if you're on an airplane and you hear someone coughing, you're like, Oh God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, that was another reason why we decided to just live in Girona was because, you know, the kids on the airplane, they're traveling, they're bringing germs into the house. And then I'm just, and they come into, you know, this perfectly sanitized area that I kept and I'm like, Oh no, you're ruining it. But (laughs) so I think that'll cut down a lot of that. But yeah, it is. We are so neurotic about staying healthy, you know, just, yeah, hand sanitizers, mouthwash, all this stuff, just to keep everything clean. It makes a big difference. Yeah. I have a question about Girona. You read a lot of, there's a lot of pro road teams that are based there, a lot of riders there. So why Girona out of all the places in Spain or Europe? Why is that so attractive to a lot of teams and and riders? Honestly, this is going to be my first year living in Girona. When I first started my career, I was living in Lucca, Tuscany. It was beautiful there. It is kind of like living in the Stone Age there. It's not very modern, you know, think the airport's a hassle. And then after that, we moved to Nice, uh, which is beautiful. It can be a little busy, some traffic, and, um, and it's expensive there, but a uh, beautiful area. Girona, it kind of has the best of all packages. It's, uh, you know, it's reasonably priced. The weather's good. The roads are amazing for training. Uh, You have the Barcelona airport right there. It just really is a perfect package for um, everything a cyclist needs. Nice. Well, I want to talk about team stuff because most of the people that listen to this podcast are mountain bikers and mountain biking in general is a pretty individualized sport. 
So it's really hard for me to understand what it would be like to be a part of a big team, particularly when you're taking part in these humongous high profile races in Europe. So like, what is it like to be part of a team and how do you determine what your role is on the team? And like, how do you move up if you want to change positions on the team? How does that work? Yeah. So the whole thing with road cycling in a team is you're trying to cheat the wind. That's basically as simple as it is. I mean, yeah, you can break down into all of its complexities, but um, basically when you're drafting behind somebody, you're saving a lot of energy. So a teammate's job, if they're protecting their leader, is to shelter them from the wind as much as possible to make sure that they save as much energy as they can for the final of the race or the crunch time of the race. Who that leader is, is going to depend on the race at the time. The Tour de France, obviously, that's the race that everybody knows. That race is always won either in the mountains or the time trials. So you're going to have to be good in both of those areas and be good day to day for three whole weeks. And not very many riders can do that. So the guys who are who can do that, you know, everybody protects them. But then there's also other kinds of races, like uh, like there's races up north the cobblestone classics like Tour of Flanders, Perry Roubaix, and we have a leader on our team for that as well, Greg Van Avermaet. You know, he's he's won Perry Roubaix, finished on the podium multiple times at Flanders, and then all the teams, the rest of our team, they're going to protect him in that race just to keep him out of the wind, making sure that if he needs from the car or if he gets a flat tire, they give up their equipment for him. They basically do everything to where to make it as easy as possible for the leader to where he's ready to go win the final. Uh, as far as moving up or getting a leadership position, sometimes it's a matter of raising your hand and say, I, I want to be a leader. And then you have to be willing to step up and, you know, there, maybe there'll be other smaller races. It's not like if you say, I want to be the leader for the Tour de France, you're going to get it. <laughs> but they might say, okay, we're going to up in a leadership position for this lower level race. Like say, like in a couple of weeks, we have a tour of Valencia here and, you know, there might be a perfect opportunity to give a young kid a shot. And if he seizes the opportunity and gets a good result, then they say, okay, you did that here. Now let's see you do it here. And if they keep proving themselves and keep, uh, you know, progressing in that way, then eventually they could get a shot at a leadership in the tour de France. Yeah. So speaking of Tour de France, like you've been, you were fifth there, was it two times? Yes. I've been twice fifth. So you were on your team, the leader for Tour de France that year, those years, right? For one of the years for 2014. Yes. I was the leader that year mm -hmm. in 2012. It was kind of this weird dynamic that happened. We actually had the defending champion Cadell Evans mm -hmm. from the year before. And my role was to be the guy to help him in the mountains and Cadell was not having a great year that year. Uh, even though he was defending champion, he was wearing the number one on his back. He just hold the wheel and I was having to wait for him. And then eventually the team said, okay, well, look, it doesn't look like he's having the best year. You're going to have to go for yourself so that the team can get the best possible result. So I did not start that year with any ambition of being the leader. I was, uh, I mean, we had the guy who won the year before on the team. But it just kind of through circumstances happened that way. But I was I was super young at the time, super green. I was 23 years old. I actually won the white jersey 
which is the jersey for the best rider under 25 years of age racing the tour that year. And I mean, I look back at that year and it, it seemed like it almost happened by accident. Yeah. Yeah. So whenever um, you were the leader for the team, like, did you feel added pressure? Like, cause I'm just thinking about how I would feel and I would feel a little bit nervous and I'd worry about all these things happening and to win a race, you can't be stuck in that mindset of, of being worried and like in deep playing defense, you need to be playing offense and thinking about winning instead of not losing. So how did you manage that in your mind? I mean, I'm, I'm still learning to manage it. I mean, it's always, there's definitely a big learning curve to things happening by accident. And now it's like, okay, we'll do it again. Um, now things are expected. Then, you know, the big contracts come and, you know, then there's more expectations and that's, uh, you know, that's something I've have struggled with and, you know, I'm, I'm learning, but you know, rides with Reggie Miller, like that's, that's an inspiring thing. Like his, you know, I don't know if you guys watched his 30 for 30, but when he was on the eight points and nine seconds and he was on the free throw line and they showed the difference between John Starks and Reggie, you know, that like stuff like that, how that can inspire you. Like I'm always looking for inspiration like that to just, you know, to want to have the ball. But yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's an adjustment. You go from being kind of this happy-go-lucky kind of, uh, you know, the world is your oyster, anything's possible, to like, now you have to do it. And then, well, I went back after finishing to the 2015 tour, and I was sitting third overall with four stages to go, and I got sick, and I, I didn't even finish. That was a big blow. Yeah. I mean, but... And then you start going in your mind of like, oh man, is this going to happen again? And it's like, what's, how do you get over that? But you got to just learn to put the past where it is and, you know, keep moving forward. A lot of that, it sounds like, is, is managing both your internal expectations and the external expectations of that. And for you, what's more motivating? What's more challenging? Managing your own views of yourself or trying to balance what everyone's expecting of you on the outside? Like, is, is there, can you differentiate those two and, and which ones are easier or harder to deal with? Definitely, obviously, as a high-level athlete, you put a lot of pressure on yourself. And I don't think um, – I think it was hard for me to deal with external pressure, you know, expectations from the outside. But I think at a certain point, you have to just put that away and say, you know what, this is the pressure I put on myself. And if I can live up to my own expectations, I have to be happy with that no matter what anyone else thinks. If it's not good enough for the team, then, you know, it's not good enough for the team. But if I can live with myself and be proud of what I've done, that's got to be the most important. Yeah, something we've talked about with some of the other professional cyclists we've had on the podcast was focusing on your daily actions and then focusing on just doing your best. And sometimes your best isn't good enough to meet somebody else's expectations or even your own. But just it's hard to accept that sometimes when you show up on the line and it may be your best day. It may not be your best day, but just having integrity and doing the best that you can. But the hard part is accepting that sometimes because sometimes the best isn't what you wanted. <laughs> and that's a hard pill to swallow and just learning how to be okay with that. And also like when there's me, like, especially for you, because you're such a high profile cyclist, like the media starts wanting to know, well, what happened? And, and like, everybody's asking, well, what happened? And you're like, well, I did the best I could today. Like nothing happened. And it's really hard to explain that. And then people will say, oh, well, so-and-so is just making an excuse. And it's like, well, you're, you're not making an excuse. You're just saying what happened. So like having to deal with explaining all these things is so hard. It's true. I mean, I've, I've gone on and off social media 
a bunch of times. Like I'll have an account and then delete the account and then I'll start it up again and then delete it because, you know, sometimes people, they just don't have nice things to say and you don't want to hear it. But then sometimes you think, oh, this would be really nice to put out there. But yeah, at the end of the day, you have to do your best and, you know, you can only control what you can control. I mean, you can do all the hand sanitizer in the world and do all the mouthwash and everything you can think of. But sometimes you get a bug at the wrong moment. And, you know, like you're dealing with now, you had to skip a race. And I mean, and that sucks, but it happens. And, you know, all you can do is plan for the next adventure. It's interesting. We were speaking with Reggie and, and talk is he's really well known for being the probably one of the most mentally strong athletes ever in the NBA. The guy's known to be hitting big shots at important moments with lots of pressure. So we asked him, like, how do you get your mindset there? And he actually said, well, when I was a kid, my sister would just basically beat the crap out of me on the basketball court. And he said, I literally went home crying half the time. So he said that just toughened the hell up. on Like he had this person who was constantly beating him and pushing him and beating him and pushing him and it forced him to become this kind of chippy guy that, that always had something to prove and, and it pushed him really hard. So I, I, I laugh when I think of, you know, those moments where I can see Reggie getting his head handed to him by his sister. But have you had anyone in your life that's been a bit of a mentor as you're going through these things? Because I know your father's been in cycling and you're surrounded by awesome teammates. Do you have people that, that you look up to have been sort of helping you as you've been growing all the way from a junior all the way up till today? Well, I think uh, my sort of toughen up mentality came with just that uh, cycling is so not a mainstream sport for a 10-year-old to be doing. Um, <laughs> so I was always racing against the adults and always getting dropped. I could never hold the wheel because basically I was like this skinny little kid who hadn't even hit puberty yet. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, just it wasn't just uh, one person. It was everyone who I was getting my head kicked in from. And it was it was kind of like, all right, you know, you, you stayed with the group this long. Now stay with them this long. And then and then you stay with them this long. And then and the cool thing about cycling is there's so many levels that you can level up. Like you can go from beginner to sport to expert to pro and mountain biking or, you know, in, in road, it's like cat four to cat three to cat two and so on. So that's how I kept leveling up and kept getting my head kicked in in each one of these levels. But then you get to the point where, okay, I'm mastering this level and now it's on to the next challenge. And then, and then you head to Europe and that's a whole nother ball game. And it, it seems like I, I had never gotten past that moment of getting my head kicked in until I became, I mean, even up to your first year pro until that tour that I was just talking about, that was when I was like, wow, okay. I'm here. I'm really with the best now. And now I, now you need to figure out how to stay there. Yeah. I think that that's a hard, actually a hard place to be. Like people think, Oh, it's so great to be at the top of the sport. Like, Oh, you have the, you have everything and you're a top pro, but really like it is nice, but it's also really hard because of everything you just said, like you have everything to lose and everybody's watching you and you just want to be able to stay there. And you really do still get your head kicked in <laughs> because you're still, it's on a different level, but you're still getting your head kicked in on certain days. Absolutely. I mean, it's not an easy sport and it never gets any easier. And yeah, it's, uh, it's like, you know, you can never become complacent. You can never be just happy with what you've done in the past. You, um, you got to keep setting new goals, setting new standards and trying to fix things, trying to try new things. 
And, you know, that can also be something like, okay, I'm going to try this now. And then you find out, well, that didn't work. <laughs> but at least you're, you know, you're moving forward and you're learning and taking it all in. I'd say now I'm probably at the halfway point of my career. And I, I feel like I've gathered enough knowledge and I'm, uh, you know, and have enough experience to know what works and what doesn't. And now it's a matter of, okay, let's just put everything into this template and go with it and see what happens. And, you know, a couple more years and, uh, you know, I should be right at the cusp of things to be able to get a couple more good tours in. Yeah, with road biking, I think it's really hard because you have to be able to read the peloton. And that's really different from mountain biking. Like mountain biking, you might have to read one person, not an entire peloton and figure out like, all these different things that could happen. And I haven't done a ton of road racing. So when I watch road biking, like Matt has actually watched a ton of road races. So he actually ends up explaining to me what's happening in the race. And I just think how complicated that would be like watching this chess game and then knowing when to go and when not to go, it would just be really hard. Yeah. It's uh I mean, I like the way you put it, the chess game. I mean, you have to know, you know, when the days are you, I mean, we study everything. It's, it's crazy. Um, we have to know what the wind direction is because if it's a side wind, the peloton could split up in the wind. If it's a summit finish, we have to know, okay, we got to stay protected. We got to protect this guy or I have to stay protected until the very end. Sometimes the road is only so wide and there's 200 guys that all need to be in the front. You know, it's, it might not look like it on TV, but we're, we're riding like centimeters from each other. And you know, there's some nasty crashes, all because people need to be in the front and you have to fight to be there. And yeah, if it's a time trial day, you know, and that's a day that you can make up time, you have to be ready to, to sink that three pointer. Yeah, there's, you have to just study everything that's even outside of the conditioning and the training. It's a chess match. If you, if you burn a bunch of matches and use a bunch of energy before the days that are the days that you're supposed to make time, then, you know, it's not going to happen for you. It's, it's interesting on TV as a cycling fan, you really only get to see what they would call the most important parts of the race at the end when things start to happen. So you miss usually that first hour, hour and a half when the break goes. Can you explain a little bit just how important that is for the team and how much pressure there is on teams to get into breaks? Because it always appears like the Peloton's kind of coasting along and the guys in the break are trying to figure out how hard do we really need to go. And it seems so dumbed down, but you miss all of that action at the start. Yeah. So if it's a really lumpy day and it, it's a hard day and you think, okay, the sprinters probably are going to be dropped on this day, but it's not a big summit finish. So there's not, the GC guys aren't really going to GC means general classification, like the guys fighting for the yellow jersey. They're not really going to attack today because it's not a good day to make time. Those are the days that the break is going to win. And when if the breakaway is going to win, that's a hard breakaway to get into. It, it can take an hour, sometimes up to two hours just to get the breakaway started. And then once it goes, you know, it's basically damage control. You got to make sure that nobody in there is uh, – is close on time. So the GC teams, they'll, they'll make sure it's close, but they also want to save some energy. So they don't want to chase the break back. They just want to limit the damage that they can do. If it's a pan flat day, no wind, and you see that there's two guys up the road, nobody really wants to waste energy on the, that day because they know that, that the break's not going to win because the sprinters teams are going to chase it back. 
then you'll see just a couple of smaller teams that get out there just to show the jersey for the publicity they get on the cameras. And then they'll be controlled by the sprinters teams like, you know, by Mark Cavendish or Marcel Kittle. They'll they'll keep them in check and they'll bring them back and then it'll be a, a big bunch sprint. But man, the days when the breakaway is going to win, those are the hardest days in ever. I mean, sometimes you know, straight off the line, you are going full gas and it, it it does not let up. And then as soon as the break goes, they have to control straight away. So the pace on those days is so hard. Right. Yeah. Because on, on TV, sometimes it appears like that's a recovery day for the GC guys. But <laughs> when that when there's 200 guys yeah. going crazy at the start, you, you just don't like everyone's coasting. <laughs> I know. Sometimes sometimes it irks me so much to hear those commentators say like, they stick a microphone in your face and they're like, so easy day out there today, huh? You just got to sit in and I, I'm sitting there like, you know, bleeding out of my eyeballs and I'm just like, um, yeah, I guess if it gets harder than this, I don't know. I might be in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So something that I think is really interesting about road racing is that not always, but a lot of times you have to go somebody else's speed. So like if the Peloton speeds up or somebody breaks away, you have to match that speed. And that's something that I personally struggle with because a lot of the stage races I do, it is like a road race at the start and it's like men and women together. It's a Peloton and you have to like try and stay with the top guys as long as possible, but you have to decide when is it acceptable to go beyond into the red and stay there. And when is it acceptable to not do that? And also like when are you being just mentally weak saying, Oh, I can't do it. It's too hard. And when are you actually being smart? So like, how do you know how to make that call? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, when you're following in the bunch and they're they're controlling, you have to stay on the Peloton. If you lose the Peloton, you're going to be out of time limit. You're going to be out of the race. There's, there's sometimes when you don't have a choice. You got. But when the real crunch time of the race is happening on the summit finish, and you have these pure climbers who are who are attacking and going away. Sometimes you think, oh, I can't give up any ground to this guy. But sometimes if you try too long and stay in the red too long, instead of staying your own pace, you could, instead of losing 30 seconds, you're going to lose three minutes. So yeah, some of it is being smart, like, like you said, and knowing, okay, I got to back off now and go my pace to the line. Otherwise I'm going to blow up. But sometimes, yeah, I've had those moments where I'm like, man, if I had stayed with him for a little bit longer... I bet I could have made it to the line with him, but you know, that's always, you know, hindsight's always 2020, you know, you gotta, you gotta do your best judgment on the day. Um, you gotta know your legs, you gotta know, and also you gotta, you gotta just stay present and in the moment. Sometimes if you're feeling like I gotta be there, don't second guess it, just stay there. And sometimes if you really think like I gotta back off and go my own pace, don't second guess that either. Get in your pace and make it to the line and limit the damage. It's nice to know that someone like you even has those thoughts like when you're racing and that it's still something that you have to think about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I didn't have to think about that, I'd probably win a lot more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I actually really want to talk about race weight because weight is something that cyclists are always obsessed with, like all of us are. And it's actually funny, um, on my the guest, her name was Chef AJ, and her show came out this past week, and she coined the term cyclorexia because we're all like, oh, I got to get skinny, got to get skinny. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, and some people do it in an unhealthful way. 
So I wanted to talk about like in your scene, like in the pro peloton in Europe, like what is that like, like body image and, and managing weight and the things that you do to maintain race weight? Like, what is that like? Cause in road biking, I don't know. I've, I've argued with people about this, but I think weight matters so much more in road biking because there's no other variables. Like there are in mountain biking, like technical terrain and things like that. So going uphill, it's like your Watts on the road, period. Yeah. It's all about being a good climber is basically power to weight ratio. Uh, you can have a, low, a ton of power, but if you're a heavier guy, your power to weight ratio is going to be less. And everyone's shooting for over 6.2 watts per kilo. And that's hard to get to. You have to <laughs> push a lot of power, be really skinny or light. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's guys who... You really do obsess over that. I mean, I've obsessed about it, but I mean, it's it's not as easy as maybe some other sports like jockey. They can just start themselves in. Like we don't have that luxury. We have to have the energy to do the training rides and the power, and you know, to be able to last and not get sick, be durable. There's where you have to be smart about it. I mean, a lot of the training we do, we burn so much that you have to refuel. You have to, you know. You have to give your body the energy. And I think a lot of it is, you know, people try, I've tried many things like, like a low carb diet or, um, you know, a lot of the fads that come out, but really the best thing to do is, is to just be balanced. Cause yeah, I mean, you're, you're always going to get it on the replay. If you lose it, but you're completely suffering, you're, it's not going to last. So you just have to, you know, I, I eat clean, try to limit like the simple carbs and, you know, just eat more whole foods, make sure you have a good ratio, carbs, proteins, fats. And through the training, you have to just let your body do what it's going to do. If you try to force it too much, it's not going to work out. I mean, that sounds like kind of a boring answer, but uh, that's really all you can do. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I think everybody wants to know the easy secret, but the, from the sounds of it, it's it's never really easy. It's about doing lots of little things right, and and yeah, it'd be fun to say, yeah, here's the the simple solution. But apparently, there isn't one. <laughs> well, I actually like your yeah, answer. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of it is is really just common sense. Like, what can you do without? If you're you know drink two beers every night, that's probably something that's not helping you. Um, <laughs> you, you have to just ask yourself, like, what if, if I'm, what am I eating or consuming that is going to help me push my bike forward? And if thing that where you're thinking this is going to help me, you know, if you're having muffins for breakfast, probably a bowl of you know steel cut oats is going to be a lot more nutritious and push you a lot further than the muffins. I mean, maybe they're maybe they're really great muffins. I don't know. <laughs> you ask that with any any question, like anything. Anytime you go to the meal table, you just have to ask yourself, like, is, you know, you're better off having a little bit more for dinner and cutting out the dessert and cutting out the alcohol and cutting out the sweets and make sure that it's all just nutritious. And I know you guys are actually a lot really into plant-based stuff. Is that, is that true? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I actually wanted to ask you, how is that working out for you? Um, you feel better with that? Yeah, it's awesome. I changed my diet almost five years ago. And I went from kind of like dangling, trying to get third place at races to being like a contender to win all the races. And I think that my recovery times got better and it's easier to maintain race weight. Of course, like the wine and the chocolate and all those things kind of 
eke in and out of my diet. And that's if there's weight fluctuation, it's generally from that. But I think as long as people are eating whole foods, like what you said, and they're eating like nutritious foods that you don't really need to add in like meat or dairy or eggs. Like I, I feel like I do get enough protein. I feel like I do get everything that I need to recover from my races and my race load. So for me, it's worked really, really well. And my health overall, like a lot of times people look at weight loss as like, I just got to get lose weight so I can go faster on my bike or be more ripped. But from like a total health and longevity standpoint, it's not necessarily the healthiest thing. So when I look at diet and when I look at weight loss, I try and think, okay, this is going to help me now, but what about in 50 years? Like, is this helping me long-term stay healthy? So that's why I really like the way that I eat. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. one of the big advantages of a plant-based diet is it's a very anti-inflammatory diet. So not only are you not consuming some things that cause inflammation in your body, and as an athlete, of course, that's really important because you're trying to you're training and creating inflammation and trying to recover. And if you're adding additional inflammation into your body, then that just potentially can slow down your recovery. But also you're eating more anti-inflammatory type foods. So you're kind of double ending it. You're not putting in as much inflammatory and you're consuming more things that bring down inflammation. So, you know, that is maybe a bit of a simplistic view, but from a recovery standpoint, there's a fair bit of research to suggest that it helps with recovery just because of that. Yeah. And like more nitrate rich vegetables too. And also like in terms of getting sick, like I got, Matt and I both got sick, but when I changed my diet, like before that I got sick after every stage race. And this is the first time I've actually been on the couch sick since I changed my diet in like five years. So that's really helped my immune system too. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. And I'm also a big believer in that everyone is going to have, is they're going to have to their own individual method of what works for them. I think everyone, if you take 10 people, and you feed them all the same dinner at the meal table, they're all going to feel differently after the meal. Some might feel great. Some might not feel as good. So you're going to have to like learn your body and find out what works best for you. I mean, some people, you know, there's this big debate of like, is it paleo or is it vegan? And, you know, I'm like, you're going to have to find out for yourself. Mm -hmm. I don't think one's right and one's wrong. I think it's, uh, The vegan obviously is working great for you guys. It might not work as well for someone else, but it's going to be, you know, everyone's body is unique and everyone is going to respond to things in different ways. So it's up to you to go kind of go find out. The one thing I will say that probably is universal for everyone is, you know, the processed foods, you know, minimally processed is always going to be better. Yeah. And I think, yeah, absolutely. From a weight management perspective, that's, hands down the easiest and from a health perspective. And and I think also everyone approaches their diet for different reasons, whether it be performance, whether it be health. And and when it comes to being a vegan, some people are concerned about the environment or concerned about animal rights. So it really depends on why you're trying to make the change to your diet, what outcomes that you want and yeah, and what your focus is. But yeah, hands down across every one of those metrics, if you avoid processed foods, then then the world's a much better place. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, something you said, you said like paleo and vegan. Yeah, like both of those cut out processed foods. Both of those are all about whole foods. And the people who are actually doing paleo, right? Like a good friend of mine is like has like all these paleo books and she's she's really into the paleo thing. But she actually will say like, look, my plate isn't all meat. I have tons of vegetables on my plate. So I think that a lot of people like to draw lines in the sand and say things are black and white and it has to be this way. But 
really, if you look at the big picture, it's really just about what you said, eating like limiting processed foods and eating as many whole foods as possible and also adding in lots of vegetables. And if people have a little bit of meat, like whatever. Yeah. And also just not being gluttonous too. I mean, you could have, you know, I've seen people like friends of mine that they take this Buffalo burger, but it's like a 10 pound burger. And I'm like, I'm like, wow, that's a lot of food. And he's like, yeah, but it's paleo. I'm like, well, that's great. But you know, that would probably work for three different meals, not one meal. Like, you know, you, you still have to keep it into perspective. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I have one last uh, topic I want to bring up and I just want to talk about like you came up through the ranks as a cyclist and it was kind of the post Lance Armstrong, like heavy doping era. And like, what is that like? And what's that been like for you to be in the, in the Peloton after that whole scene? And, and currently, like, I'm sure there are people who are doping. So how do you like mentally go through that whenever you're racing against people that may or may not be? And then there's always like that pressure to do it too. Like, how do you manage all that? Yeah, certainly it was, yeah, 2012 that all this stuff, uh, with Lance really came to a head. And that was like, right as I was kind of getting into the, you know, that was the year that I won the white Jersey. So it was certainly a lot of questions that I had to answer that I knew nothing about because I was never there during that, that era, which was, you know, sorry to say, but it was kind of just a tainted era in that respect. You know, there's asterisks all over the places in any result book you look at, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that cycling has kind of been drugged through the mud in that way. And our generation that really has no idea how to answer these questions because right. we, we weren't there are getting all the questions. But, um, you know, all I can say is that there's been huge advancements in the testing, especially with the introduction of the biological passport. So before they could, you know, you either test positive or you don't. Now, they track biological markers. They take all your blood values, your hematocrit, hemoglobin, testosterone, you name it. Like they know, and you have to submit four times a year a blood test. And on top of that, we have to give our whereabouts anytime we're anywhere and a one hour window where we can be tested any day of the year. And with these test results, it's not a matter of did we find a substance or didn't we? They keep these blood markers on file and they say, okay, you had a hematocrit of 42 and then it went to 43 and, you know, it's all staying within range. And then all of a sudden you strout up to 60. There is no <laughs> biological way that you can explain this. So sometimes they'll use that as a positive test, even if there's no substance found, or it can just be used as a smokescreen. Like, okay, this guy is looking a little bit dodgy. We're going to test him every day till either his his markers level out or until we find something. So um, honestly, I, I have faith that the sport has cleaned up. I think that there's some gray area things that people are getting away with that I, I strongly disagree with, you know, like some people they'll, they'll kind of abuse this TUE program with a TUE stands for therapeutic use exemption. So you take a banned substance, but if you can say that I'm, it's medically necessary for me, you can get a prescription and they'll let you use it. But sometimes, you know, you find the dot, I don't know, guys will try to find a doctor who will give them this TUE, even if it's not medically necessary. And that's just kind of getting into some gray moral areas that I don't want to have anything to do with and that I think uh, needs to be looked into more. 
But as far as the um, as the period like Lance was doing where people are, you know, injecting their blood in or, you know, manipulating blood values, that that kind of stuff, I really believe isn't happening anymore in cycling. And hopefully it stays that way. Yeah, I also think like, well, you, you can tell me like the fear of a false positive. Like, do you ever have that fear that because I mean, I've been drug tested before and it's like you're taking like multivitamins or like amino acid supplements and you're just like, oh, God, like I hope that there wasn't anything in there because like you've heard of this happening where people have a, a false positive from like a supplement they're taking or maybe you accidentally ingested something. So like I'm on a like a way smaller level of, of what you're doing. So I'm sure that you have those concerns, too. And like, how do you manage that? A hundred percent. I mean, every time we get tested, you know, you get the results back. It usually takes about two weeks and you get an email. Every time I get one of these emails with a test result, I can't do anything. Like my whole world stops until I open up the website and I read the letter and it says, and the letter they write is very cryptic. They say, at this time, we have not found the presence of any substance. However, we can go back and retest this. And so you think like, okay, good. Like they didn't, nothing was in there and there's not going to be anything in there, but like, they don't say, congratulations, you're clean. They say like, (laughs) we haven't gotten you yet. (laughs) But yeah, no, I mean, I stress about it all the time. I mean, sometimes if you're sick, you know, you take some Advil. If you, I mean, if if this, um, if that was tainted with something else, you know, you look at these, these places where they make supplements on these conveyor belts, you know, you never know how well they, those places have been cleaned, if there can be some cross-contamination. So I, I do, I try to look at my, you know, anything I take, I try to study it and make sure that it's okay. And I, I take the bare minimum because of that reason, you know, it's always something that's on your mind and something you stress about. I mean, there is a story of you know, a couple of cyclists going to China and I guess they treat their, their meat there with clenbuterol and they tested positive for clenbuterol. I mean, I had never even heard of clenbuterol, but they got it through eating beef in China. But I mean, there's nothing you can do. Like, even if you prove it, they also have a rule like strict liability. You are liable for anything that is any substance that enters your body. And absolutely, it's something you stress about. But all you can do is say like, okay, I'm going to control what I can, do as much research as I can. And then at a certain point, you got to put it out of your mind and say, all right, I know I'm doing everything correctly. That has to be enough. Yeah. Well, to wrap this up, how do you feel about the year? Like it's early, it's January, like we have a whole, like a clean slate kind of in front of us. Like what are your goals for the year? I sat the tour out last year. I did the the other two big tours, the Giro and the Vuelta, and I'm really excited to be heading back to the tour this year. So that'll be my main focus for the year. Yeah, I'm here at camp and everything's going great. I've managed to stay healthy, knock on wood. I I mean, I'm just, I'm super stoked after riding with Reggie Miller and uh, (laughs) getting to meet you guys. But yeah, I mean, I think it's shaping up to be a great year. You know, families moved into Girona. Uh, We made all sorts of positive changes. And I think 2018 is going to be a big year. Awesome. Well, yeah, we'll be watching and cheering for you. And hopefully we can all go riding sometime. Then I can be the one who's starstruck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, let's, yeah I, I told Reggie the next time we ride, it's going to have to be on trails. So yeah. I mean, he, he rode up road to kind of com- accommodate me a little bit. So I'm going to have to ride on some trails to get out of my comfort zone. Oh, I think you'll be good. <laughs> awesome, awesome, TJ. Well, yeah, good luck this year. And hopefully we'll get to chat again soon. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. 
Thank you, and good luck to you guys. All right, thanks, thanks a lot. What'd you guys think? That was the first professional road racer that we've had on the show, but I thought it was really interesting. And while I don't do a lot of road biking, it actually made me interested in road biking and pay more attention to road bike racing. It's really cool whenever you can actually connect with somebody. So whenever I'm looking at the Tour de France this year, I'll be cheering for TJ. How is 2018 going for you guys? I know that lots of people make New Year's resolutions at this time of year, and I wrote an article on how to set goals, and it's on the website for Nature's Fair, which is a regional health foods chain here in Kelowna and Vancouver in the Okanagan area. But if you want to check out that article, I'll put it in the show notes. This has been kind of a rough first start of the year for me. I had a great trip over the holidays to Sedona, Palm Desert, and Albuquerque. And I took some really fun ride videos that I'm working on getting up on my YouTube channel. And some of them are already there. But around Christmas time, some of our family members were sick. And I usually try to avoid sick people as much as possible just because there are severe consequences if I get really sick. And it happened. I got really sick for the first time in many, many years. And we had to cancel our trip to Chile, which was a huge disappointment and a huge inconvenience. And it was also expensive to cancel trips because you know how the airlines are. So that really sucked. I'm supposed to be in Chile this week racing and I'm not. I'm at home in Kelowna and I'm struggling to get back into a training regime because my body is still not 100%. So I actually recorded something over the weekend that I just randomly put up on the podcast about how I deal with self-doubt. And it's been really hard lately. And I've been experiencing those feelings of when you're looking at people's social media and seeing all the things people are doing when you're not and how that feels. And it's been hard. So I just wanted to share with you guys what it looks like when things aren't rosy and when things aren't going well and how I deal with it. And it's important to think about it and to feel those feelings. And I've been feeling them every single day but also turning that into a learning experience. And I know that sounds cliche, but that seems to help me whenever it's really hard. So I'll let you guys listen to that podcast episode instead of me ramble on here forever about it. But I'm back in Kelowna. I am training. I'm on the trainer, but it's going to take me a little while to get back to the point where I can start hammering again. But that's okay. And I'm excited to do some cross-country skiing again as well. My next race is actually going to be in Spain now, and hopefully everything goes well for that, but I'm just trying to get ready. It's been fun seeing everybody joining the Plant Powered Tribe Facebook group. Everybody is welcome. You don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to eat a plant-based diet, but it's just a place where we can go for information, where we can share recipes, where we can just keep each other on track to staying healthy. So feel free to join it, you guys. Everybody is welcome, and I would love to see you there. Thanks to everybody who has pre-ordered the Effing Magical Unicorn Socks. I started working with a designer this year to help me put out better designs because I'm not a graphic designer. I just draw stuff with a Sharpie on a piece of paper and it goes onto a sock. So this time this didn't happen. It was actually made by a professional designer named Nathan Karsgaard and he's awesome. But Defeat is still manufacturing these socks. You can pre-order them. Check out the show notes. A lot of people were upset in the summer whenever they had 30 days to order and they didn't and they didn't get any socks. So this time I'm trying to prevent people being disappointed. I'm trying to have a pre-order, but then it's also going to be available long term for you guys as well. 
Big thank you to you guys for listening to my show. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate all the emails and messages you guys have been sending me. It makes my day every time I hear them and it helps me stay motivated to know that it's really making a difference in your lives in a lot of different ways. And I'm always open to hearing your feedback. And thanks to those of you who are supporting my show financially on Patreon. A lot of people are spending between four and $10 and that type of commitment really helps us with the production of the show. This podcast has been a really fun journey, and I'm excited to help it keep evolving. And I also wanted to thank this week's podcast sponsor, Health IQ, because now I'm not going in the hole every month paying for the production of the show, and that's awesome. So um, Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for athletes and health-conscious people like us. And another really cool thing about Health IQ is that they really do focus on diet and they have all these cool stats on their website about how people who eat a vegan or a vegetarian diet have way lower incidences of diseases. And because of that, we can qualify for lower rates on our life insurance. So if you wanna check that out, go to their website. And if you wanna get a quote, go to healthiq.com Sonia or mention my name, Sonia, whenever you talk to a Health IQ agent. That's it for this week's show. Wishing you guys all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week. 